0: Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, Matthew writes, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Matthew chapter 8 began with a series of miracles. Now Matthew presents a serious mandate. Jesus describes the true cost of discipleship to those who say they're serious about being a Jesus follower, a Christ follower. It's also going to include a series of tests that will include the subject of place and money and family and this shouldn't come as a surprise because you'll remember in chapter 6 verse 5 before teaching the, his followers about prayer, Jesus taught them how not to pray. Don't pray like the hypocrite, he said. Don't pray to be seen, he said. Don't pray like the pagans who think that they're going to be heard for their much praying. And so now the attention will turn to this issue of discipleship. And before he talks about the issue in earnest, we're going to find out what it means not to be a disciple. Jesus is going to give a series of tests, the test of relocation, the test of riches, the test of relationship. And the Bible teaches that real faith, true faith, is going to be tested faith. And those who claim to follow Jesus will be tested. It begs the question, how do you feel about tests? And many people aren't really happy with tests. We know that military soldiers undergo training. We know that police officers undergo training. It makes good sense that you're going to put people through a battery of tests before you give them a gun, before you give them a badge. Airplane pilots hopefully are tested on simulators, which progressively more difficult tasks in order to know how they're going to respond in a crisis. In the same way, the Lord will sometimes administer test. Warren Wiersbe notes that when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and he keeps his hand on the thermostat. And that's the comfort. The comfort is no matter what the test, no matter how difficult the circumstance, there is a God, there is a Lord who is in charge of how high it's going to go or how low it's going to go. So what does it mean? To be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Most of you know that a disciple is a disciplined learner. The disciple of Jesus, by the way, accepts the whole Jesus. You should tweet that. The disciple of Jesus accepts the whole Jesus. Not just the part at the beginning and not just the part at the middle and not just the part at the end. We model his beliefs. We model his behavior. We believe what he taught. We practice what he practiced. It was Billy Graham who said, in that way that Billy Graham speaks, Jesus invited us not to a picnic, but to a pilgrimage. He writes, not to a frolic, but to a fight. Billy Graham said, he offered us not an excursion, but an execution. Our Savior said that we would have to be ready to die to self, and sin, and the world, unquote. So what is it that hinders us? What throws a roadblock towards us, what keeps us or, or works with us to inhibit our desires to follow Jesus. And often it boils down to two things, riches and relationships. We might put it another way, and that is human comfort or human circumstances, Often we want to satisfy ourselves rather than to satisfy the Lord. We're tempted to disobey the Lord. And so sometimes we find ourselves with one foot in heaven and the other foot on the earth. We are attracted to the things of heaven. All that heaven invites us and, and promises us. But sometimes we're attracted to this world and its promises. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, only he who obeys truly believes, and only he who believes truly obeys. And so it begins with the test of relocation. Look at verse 18. It says, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart, to go to the other side. You'll remember that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He attracted great numbers of people. They were attracted to his ministry. Who wouldn't be? Those of you who have been following along, you listen to Matthew chapter five, six and seven in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter eight, we saw Jesus healing people. He heals the leper. He heals the centurion servant. He heals Peter's uh, mother-in-law. He heals people who are demonically possessed. He heals people who are demonically oppressed. The miracles, the healing, the excitement generates enthusiasm and would be followers and disciples. But the crowds will thin dramatically the moment that Jesus begins to make demands on his followers. Many were either unprepared or unwilling to pay a price. And so, even in this very simple statement, and when Jesus saw great multitudes, he gave a command to depart to the other side. You'll remember where he is. He's in Capernaum. And you'll remember that there is the Sea of Galilee. He's on the western shore of the sea. And this simple act, this simple act of asking people to go to the other side of the lake is going to cause some of the people to reevaluate their relationship. With Jesus. From Mark's gospel, we learn that several people will get into the boat. They'll go to the other side of the lake, but some of of them won't. Just the very simple command will put some people in a position where they go, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to go there. When Hernan Cortes landed in Veracruz in 1519, he began his conquest of Mexico. He had a small force of some 700 soldiers, and he purposely set fire to his fleet of 11 ships. His men on the shore watched as their only means of retreat sank to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. And with no means of retreat, there was only one possible direction that they could go. And that was into the interior of Mexico and whatever was in there. In paying the price for being Jesus' disciples, sometimes we are going to be faced with a circumstance where we purposely destroy all avenues of retreat. Sometimes we have to resolve that whatever the price for being this follower, we're going to pay it. And in one sense, the people who come to Christ are displaced. Here in the text, they're just simply going from one place to another. But in a very real sense, when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Christ, when you become a Jesus lover... You go from one place to the other. In the big scheme of things, you go from the place of death to the place of life. You go from darkness into light. You go from death to life. And some of you know what that's like, to just simply be called to go somewhere where you Formally weren't. And there's a sense of trepidation. There's a a sense of expectation. What will I do if Jesus asks me to relocate? What would happen if everyone? What would happen if everyone who named the name of Jesus, who claimed Jesus as their Lord, was willing to lay hold of the very simple meaning of true discipleship? You know, in our study, we're going to discover that salvation is free. It's by grace through faith. It's always by grace through faith. But discipleship is something else. It will always cost you everything. What will happen when the teacher is despised? The teacher is rejected. The teacher is opposed. And so two men will be confronted with the living Lord We've already been confronted with the powerful message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen the power of his healing. We've seen the power over disease. We've seen the power over demons. But now we are going to be confronted with the power of his personality. Look what it says in verse 19. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you. Wherever you go and the Lord Jesus will test the scribe's sincerity and his security. Scribes by the way are talked about a lot in the scriptures. Ezra is an Old Testament scribe. It it could be that this scribe heard the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 and 6 and 7. He witnessed the powerful healings at the beginning of chapter 8. He saw the dramatic deliverance from demonic oppression and possession. He's seeing this. He's hearing the preaching. He's seeing all of the incredible things that are going on. And he says, I'll follow you. This becomes a, a the true life inspiration. Some of you grew up in a different time, in a different space. You remember... When someone would say, I will follow you. There is no ocean so deep, no mountain so high it can't keep. You guys know the rest. (laughs) Keep me away. Okay, we're done with that. I'll follow. He says, I'll follow. From now and forever. You'll always be my true love. My true love. Okay, a little bit more. (laughs) Now, you'll remember in this Culture Scribes were a part of the religious elite, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Scribes were religious authorities, and they would have functioned as the doctors of the law. Scribes were teachers. They were normally highly educated. They were considered scholars. They were typically educated in some rabbinic school, and it would have been unthinkable to follow some peasant preacher from some remote village. But this scribe has heard someone preach like no one has ever preached before. He's seen things that he has never seen before. He sees Jesus and the miracles and the healing and the deliverance and the fact that the scribe calls Jesus teacher must have impressed even the disciples. Certainly the crowds, but it doesn't impress Jesus. When he says, I'll follow you, it's almost like choosing to support one presidential candidate when there are like 17 or 18 running and you say, hey, look, I know that there's a lot to choose from, but I'm going to throw my support to you. Jesus, this is your lucky day. But Jesus is no ordinary candidate. And this has caused no end of consternation for so many Bible teachers. It's sort of like, Jesus, you have him exactly where you want him. Look, he wants to follow you. This is the time to ask him to get out his checkbook. This is the time to donate to the campaign. This is the time not to turn him away, but find reasons for him to stay. But Jesus isn't an ordinary candidate. He isn't simply a great teacher in a long line of teachers. He's the Lord. And he doesn't want to simply promote principles that change opinions, but he is inviting power that will change lives. And by the way, in the early years of the Jesus movement, there were many people who came to Christ. There were all kinds of crazy, wonderful things that were happening. And people would climb on the bandwagon and they would get on board the Jesus train, They were impressed with the words that Jesus spoke and the miracles that Jesus performed. Many of my friends made professions of faith and then they ceased following Jesus, at least outwardly. They ceased ministry activities, at least outwardly. They stopped going to church. They stopped reading their Bibles. They would offer prayers from time to time. And if you got a chance to speak to them, they'd say, Hey, you know, yeah, maybe I am not going to church as much as I'd like to and reading my Bible as much as I'd like to. But but you know what? I never stopped believing in Jesus. And if you ask them, tell me what you think that means. What does it mean to believe in a Jesus who makes no demands, who has no requirements, who makes you do nothing and who never changes you? And in verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Even animals have shelters. Even animals can go to a place of safety and protection. Animals build places of refuge from their enemies. Will you sacrifice comfort? Will you embrace the fact that you might not be as safe as you want to be? And by the way, when Jesus says these words, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to place his head. This is the first reference, by the way, the first appearance in the Gospels of the expression, the Son of Man. And Jesus will, uh, will refer to himself using that expression some 80 times throughout the New Testament. Matthew 16, 28, we'll see it again. Matthew 19, 28, we'll see it again. It comes from... The book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. It is a title that speaks of his claim, both of the right to rule in his messianic office. He often uses this title to describe his mission, to describe his death to describe his resurrection from the dead. He's the son of man. He is also the son of God. He is the son of David. In all of these different expressions, he will talk about himself, but none are more intrinsic to his identity and his message than this son of man because in this particular designation, he identifies as a human being. He identifies with you and he identifies with me. And what's also interesting is Jesus is never, never, never so desperate for converts or disciples that he's willing to lie. This person wants to follow Jesus. And if ever there was a time to make it easy, it should be now. But Jesus, Jesus asks him to count the cost. Jesus will put him under severe scrutiny. So you're smart, you're educated, you're rich, you're influential, you're enthusiastic. What a wonderful resume! Finally, Jesus is going to get a disciple who has something going for him. But Jesus puts him under even more intense scrutiny. And of course, is Jesus suggesting that the scribe is going to have a ministry to the homeless? I don't think that that's the point of this passage. Jesus is challenging the implications of the statement that the scribe has made earlier. The words Jesus said must have been shocking, disturbing. Jesus is making a factual statement. He's homeless. He's also suggesting that the scribe, in making that statement, has a home, has a comfortable home, has a comfortable life. With a comfortable home and a comfortable life and a secure position, Jesus in his humility is willing to forego the basics to accomplish the will of his father. Jesus doesn't have a mansion. He doesn't have a palace. He doesn't live in the gated community at Capernaum. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't even have a tent. In John's gospel, Jesus heals a blind man. And the scripture says, interestingly enough, in John chapter 7, verse 53, as you walk through the end of the chapter and you go to chapter 8, verse 1, it says that everyone went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and he spent the night under a canopy of stars that he had made. The Lord's causing the scribe to take stock of his commitment. And it should cause each and every one of us to take stock of our commitment. It's easy to speak words, but it's difficult to follow through with actions. I'll follow you. I'll follow you. And when you become a Christ follower, when you become a Jesus follower... Sometimes Jesus might ask radical things from you to leave the place where you live and go somewhere else. Maybe it's to change your employment or your lifestyle or your companions. And nothing seems more shocking to some people today than when Jesus will ask you, will you please turn from your sin? Will you abandon a life of rebellion and sinful disobedience and embrace him and walk with him? Many of my Jesus people friends jumped on the Christian bandwagon in the 60s and 70s. They jumped off in the 80s and the 90s. They sort of nudged their way back on in the year 2000. But sometimes you have exactly the same thing. People have no problem following Jesus if it's convenient, if it's popular, if it's not too demanding. And you know what else is interesting to me? Jesus doesn't take advantage of his temporary popularity or the scribe's emotional outburst. He doesn't strike while the iron is hot. He doesn't gather. A following when the polls are in his favor. Impressive words of commitment are easy to make, but the cost of commitment isn't always easy to make. Someone asked me on on my radio program recently about Mark Zuckerberg, who's the founder of Facebook, who was recently named the ninth richest man in the world. They were asking me, what is it about this particular thing and what is it about social media that seems to have captured everybody's attention? What is it? And I think it's because there's something inside of us that wants to relate to each other. We want to stay in touch with one another. We want to figure out a way where we can connect with one another. I suffer Facebook just so I can see my grandchildren. If they post pictures of my grandchildren, I will go there and I will watch Imagine, imagine all you had to do was just ask Jesus to be your Facebook friend and then like him on your page. Imagine a wealthy woman or an influential man or a talented individual who makes a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, imagine Jesus says, I, I, I want you to give your money to the poor, or I, I want you to give your talent to the ministry, or I want you to give your skill to the mission field. And some pitch Jesus like a candidate for office or a product to be consumed or a cure for some psychological ill or a magic formula that will make all your fear go away. Some imagine a Jesus that will simply accept your sin and he'll make no demands on you whatsoever. And for the person who says, just love Jesus, just accept Jesus... Now's not the time to talk about tests. Now's not the time to talk about discipleship. We might be doing them a grave disservice. Jesus certainly says in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, it is true that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's the gift of God. You can't earn it, you can't buy it. But discipleship will cost you everything. Vance Havner wrote, quote, What our Lord said about cross bearing and obedience isn't in the fine type, it's in the bold print on the face of the contract. It isn't like Jesus is trying to trick you into something that you are unprepared for. He loves you. You are saved by grace. You can't earn salvation. But the way some people preach the gospel, you would think that Jesus is such a nice person that you can't even believe how he could ever aggravate or antagonize or alienate anyone, at least to get him killed. Matthew chapter 10 verse 24 and 25 says a disciple is not above his teacher or a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? It was his way of reminding the religious leaders who accused him of being demonically possessed that the reason why he was able to do all of these miracles is because he was under some supernatural influence that wasn't from heaven heaven. And so when they talk about you and they talk about your life and they talk about your circumstances and they talk about what's going on in your life, it makes perfect sense that they're going to judge that there's something not quite right with you. And you know what's interesting, we're not told what happened to the scribe either here or in Luke's gospel. He's not mentioned again. Like the rich young ruler, he may not have been willing to pay the price. Olympic athletes pay a dear price to simply compete. Strict diet, painful workouts, limited social life, fierce competition. Olympic champions deny themselves almost everything for a singular dream to win. But the disciple of Jesus... What is our singular dream? What is the one thing that we set our sight on if it's not loving him and walking with him? And so we see the tests of relationships. It says in verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus tested the scribes Sincerity and security. Now Jesus will test this unnamed disciple's priority and faith. In verse 22 it says, But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The expression might better be understood as Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Jesus isn't suggesting disrespect towards his parents. That wouldn't happen. Jesus isn't disrespectful. Jesus knows the Ten Commandments. Jesus knows that you're supposed to honor your mother and your father so that your life will be long. Jesus would never disrespect his mother and his father. Jesus is insisting that priorities be made. It's better to preach the gospel and give life to the spiritually dead than to wait for your father to die and then bury him. That seems to be the point. Jesus is in effect saying, let the dead bury the dead and you follow me. It's his way of saying, we are not allowed ungodly relationships that hinder us from following the Lord Jesus, the disciple is in effect saying, look, after my father dies, then I'll be free to follow you. Now, no, different people have different views, but it's my view that the father isn't dead yet in this passage. He hasn't died yet. And so what in the world is going on? I think that he's saying, after my father dies, then I'll be free to follow you. But I have responsibilities that I have to fulfill now at home. He's in effect choosing to remain in the world and preoccupied with the world and the things of this world. By the way, the world is a place filled with the spiritually dead. Our own culture is fascinated by zombies. So much of what we look at or think about, so many movies are about the reanimated dead who feed on the living. The spiritually dead reap the benefits from those who are spiritually alive. Jesus doesn't see the world as being spiritually hip or exciting or fascinating. When Jesus looks out onto the world of a group of people who are dead spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, it's not a good thing. It's a difficult thing. If Jesus doesn't see the world of the spiritually dead, hip, exciting, fascinating. He sees them as a community of the dead. They're dead to God. They're dead to Christ. They're dead to the gospel. But just because they're dead to God and they're dead to Christ and they're dead to the gospel, that doesn't mean they're not alive to money. They're they're certainly alive to materialism. They're certainly alive to pleasure and rebellion. They're alive to self serving relationships. But guess what? They're also alive to dream and they dream of acceptance and they fabricate meaning. But in order to fabricate a world in which there is peace and love and joy and happiness and hope, they're going to have to. Borrow it from the Christian worldview. Like zombies, in order to stay alive, they have to feed on the people who are alive. Whenever an unbeliever in grief buries the body of another unbeliever, the dead bury their own dead. And some Christians are hindered by money, and some Christians are hindered by the things that money can buy, and some Christians are hindered by people, by relationships that aren't godly or God-honoring. And when you become a Christian, you don't cease to have relationships with the ungodly. You still have, perhaps, unsaved family members and friends and neighbors, God doesn't want you to cease loving them or honoring them or respecting them. How else? Could we go to the people of all the nations and make them disciples? Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. But love in that sense and in that context isn't an unconditional regard for everything that they do, but rather it is a willingness to do what's right towards them. And it's always going to be right to give people the gospel. It's going to always be right to call them to a life of hope. Jesus doesn't want you to be led by the ungodly. You may have an ungodly friend pressuring you to do ungodly things. You're not to walk with the ungodly. You're not to stand with sinners. You're not to sit in the seat of the scornful. Jesus doesn't say, and this is interesting to me, he doesn't say to this person, look, if you want to go home, go home. I think that that's what I would have probably done. But Jesus is so loving and so gracious and so kind and so generous. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, Follow me. And let the dead bury the dead. Jesus says, Follow me. The very fact that the would be disciple says, Lord, let me first even in that singular sentence, suggests a misplaced priority. He doesn't say, let me go for a moment. He doesn't say, let me go when it's time. He doesn't say, let me give priority to the relationships that you, that God has placed in my life. Jesus says, follow me. I'm your first obligation. I'm your first loyalty. I'm your first responsibility. It was the church father Tertullian who wrote that he would never treat the Roman emperor as first. He wrote, Never will I call the emperor God, and that both because it is not in me to be guilty of falsehood, not because I And because I dare not turn him into ridicule, let him think it enough to bear the name of emperor. To call him God is to rob him of his title, unquote. We have no right, we have no right, we have no right to make God in our life anyone or anything else than the the true and the living God. Anything that is not God that we make God, we are in trouble. No political leader, no entertainer, no musician, no friend, no family. I am absolutely uninterested in Christless conservatism. I am totally uninterested in Christless liberalism. And I'm definitely not interested In Christless Christianity. Jesus isn't being cruel to a man who wants to honor his family. He's putting down the disciples' secret rebellion. And that might shock you. He's putting down the disciples' secret rebellion... He's putting down a rebellion where a person says, I don't want to make you first. By the way, do you have a secret rebellion in your heart? Is there a human being that you give more honor to than to God? Is there a political party that you give more honor to than to God? So many people want to have the opportunity to get in some quality sin, and they want to get in some quality rebellion. They want to sow their wild oats, so to speak. They want to live a life of not complete rebellion and disobedience, but just enough to have some fun for a while. One girl made the statement that she would follow the Lord when she was older. She wanted to enjoy herself while she was still young. And I asked her, what if I bought you a bouquet of flowers, but I kept them all for myself? That I enjoyed the flowers, their delicate beauty, their wonderful color. And then once the flowers started to wilt, once they started to go dry, once the leaves started to fall off, that's when I decide to give you the bouquet. How do you feel? She said, awful. But isn't that exactly what you want to do with the Lord? You want your beauty and energy and youth to be spent on yourself. And when you think you're older, when no one will appreciate your beauty or your energy or your youth, then you'll give your gray hair. And your wrinkles to a better late than never God. You know, the Lord Jesus discouraged the scribe from following because he was overzealous. Jesus encouraged the second disciple to follow because he was a little too timid and a little too shy. But what happens when you're given the test? When Jesus says to you, I want you to go somewhere else. When Jesus says, I want you to deny yourself. When Jesus says, I want you to be willing to abandon earthly relationships that hinder your spiritual growth, your commitment, and your discipleship. Will you make Jesus the priority of your life? You see, Jesus isn't interested in people who are just swept away in a sea of emotion. You may not feel that quiver in your liver, you may not feel a burning in your bosom. You may. Discipleship is rarely simply about emotion. Discipleship incorporates commitment to follow Jesus. Jesus will speak of taking up the instrument of his death in Matthew 10, 38. He'll speak about placing himself above our most precious possessions and relationships in Luke 14, 26. He'll challenge and test our heart and our motive and our willingness to love him and obey him. And what are the marks of a true disciple? Well, number one, and you might take the time when you have a chance later on, perhaps sometime throughout the week, look up these passages. A disciple continues in the word of God in John chapter 8 verse 31. You're just not acquainted, but you will continue in the instruction. A disciple will manifest the love of Christ in John 13, 34. A disciple is fruitful in his or her walk with Christ, in John 15. A disciple is single-minded in their service for Christ, Matthew 6, 24. A disciple has no rivals for his or her devotion to Christ, in Luke, Luke 14, 26. A disciple will follow Christ through good and bad times, Luke 14, A disciple doesn't love the things of this world, Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Continue in the word, manifest the love of God, fruitful in your walk, single-minded in your service, will bear no rivals for devotion. And Jesus will say these words to you. Follow me. If you're smart, you'll ask him a question. Where are you going? Jesus will answer his own disciples. He'll say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. For some reason, it was almost impossible for them to hear those words. And sometimes Jesus might tell you exactly where you're going to go. You're going to go to the place of difficulty and setback and you might even go to the place of execution but you'll also be going to the place of resurrection because Jesus the place where he's going he's going to come back to life and if you follow him to the place where he's going you'll come back to life as well Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sometimes it's so difficult to hear what you're saying. Lord, so often it's difficult to be subject to the test. But Lord, we pray that you would be our priority. Lord, we pray That we wouldn't be swept away in in a simple sea of emotion. But that, Lord, we would be caught up in a calculated commitment. That, Lord, we would know that the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness that fills this world and perhaps filled our heart can be done away with. Lord, we want to know you and love with you and walk into a future that you've planned for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.